Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Michael Lennox. Michael, how are you? Good morning. I'm glad to be here with you. The last time we spoke, did you see how long ago it's been since we spoke, actually? I, I just looked this up. It's, it's probably been like two or three years. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, two and a half years. So half years, yeah. Michael's one of my first guests and one of my favorite because I come to the environment from a systemic perspective and a systems approach, and you come to it from a systems approach. You teach at UVA uh, Darden School of Business. You teach strategy. When you came on before, your book then was Can Business Save the Earth? Yes. Now you have a new book, uh, The Decarbonation Imperative. And first, great to have you back. And uh, I want to talk about the book. I want to talk about how things have gone since then. I propose, if it's okay with you, keep the listeners on, uh, on their edge for a second. Okay. When we last spoke, you talked about how agriculture was a big issue. And you took on a personal challenge of avoiding meat for a month. Yeah. And... What I remember is that you, and I just listened to this, so I was not remembering that far back. You had an easier time of it than you expected, I think. And you were talking about making a habit out of it. I'm curious how things have gone in the two and a half years since. Yeah, I, I, I can't claim 100% veganism. My wife has actually gone vegan and I am I'm nearly vegan. I do allow myself the occasional steak or the like when we're out to dinner. But in terms of daily consumption, uh, I've almost entirely eliminated uh, meat and dairy for my diet. And, uh, you know, it's actually, you know, the positive health benefits as well. So it's, it's, it's been good and, uh, I've tried to keep it up. Did our conversation play a role in that? Or I mean, maybe that was something that was on the side and your wife really made it happen or just, no, I think it has. I mean, I think, you know, your, your message and what you're trying to push, I think is an important one. And I think, you know, as someone who studies these issues, someone who cares deeply about these issues, even I can find the, um, adopt the defeatist notion that I know my little efforts are, you know, a drop in the ocean, yet that doesn't, doesn't preclude you as an individual from trying to do what you can to try to address these issues. And so I think you, uh, you rightfully highlighted that and, and, and motivated me. You know, I want to draw fine, dist- it may seem like a fine distinction. I do agree that lots of people doing things will add up. What I'm trying to work at is a switch from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. When it comes from inside, from a leadership perspective, you can much more effectively influence others. It's tough to get people to do stuff that oneself is like, ah, I hate this, but well, we have to. And that's the switch that I hope to get out there is, is certainly in my life, it's happened and with a lot of my guests that if they want to do it, yes, it'll help influence many others, but also want to improve one's life. Yeah. No, I think you know, this actually speaks to kind of my broader interest in uh, technology and disruption and how new technologies come about within an economy. because there's this tendency to think of the new as always inferior to what's been in the past, right? In the sense that, especially with environmental issues and clean technology, that like the better technologies, you know, the existing, let's say, fossil fuel-based ones, and these clean technologies aren't as good, but we need to do them for societal sake. And, And I don't think that's necessarily the right way to think about that, even in kind of a narrow economic sense of what's going to create jobs and create economic growth. You know, a lot of these things we're talking about should do that as well. So it, it's not quite the zero-sum game that it's commonly uh, framed out in the world. And I, and I say that not to be Pollyanna that, you know, hey, this is easy and we should just go do it, but just to highlight that it's not as simple, again, zero-sum trade-off as it's often often framed in policy debates and the like. So I think you were talking about some, uh, a view as part of what your book covers. It, it, this sounds like a good segue to get into what the new book is about, because I think you frame the scale and scope of the problem, which everyone knows is big, but is kind of big is different than really sitting down and figuring it out. And I think that's what you've done and said, like, this is what has to be done. 
Yeah, exactly. To the extent the first book was you know, much broader about sustainability and how business engages with the sustainability challenges we face. This second book, The Decarbonization Imperative, is going directly at climate change and trying to understand how we might have a path forward to success of, of addressing this challenge. So what we look at is, you know, as we all probably know if you're in this space, that's need for us to basically get to net zero emissions uh, in our global economy, arguably at the very least by 2050, probably earlier than that now, given you know, recent data and recent IPCC reports that have come out. Uh, that's a very tall order. So how do we break it up into kind of understandable chunks. So we particularly focus on, you know, scope one emissions, emissions directly from um, the source. And uh, we look at five major sectors in which we have these emissions that really account for the the bulk of emissions globally. So those are transportation, of course, automobiles and the like, electric utilities and energy uh, generation, industrials, things like the production of cement and steel, which are really kind of the backbones of our global economy. They are significant emitters. You have buildings uh, in our built environment um, using fossil fuels for everything from heating to uh, cooking fuels and the like. And then last but certainly not least, we have agriculture, which is about a quarter of all global emissions. It comes from too many, two primary sources. One is uh, the production of methane uh, from livestock, in particular beef and cattle are, as we were talking about, a huge emitter. And then the second one is the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers and the growth of plants. Uh, and that ultimately releases nitric oxide, which is another potent greenhouse gas out into the atmosphere. So in the book, what we try to do is let's break it into each of these different sectors and let's look at the current state of the art. Like where, where is technology in terms of clean technology? Like what's the potential for a disruption? And then to think to your point about systems-wide, what is the broader set of institutional actions that can be taken to try to get us to these more sustainable technologies. This is a lot. This is, I mean, this is changing all of the world and, or at least the Western world and over-industrialized. Oh no, it's, it's all the world, right? To be very clear, this is, you know, we, we need this to be occurring across the whole global economy. I was just watching a documentary about the sun Bushmen in Southern Africa who are living the way they have for like hundreds of thousands of years. And I was like, okay, there's like a couple hundred people who don't have to change. The remaining 7.9999 billion or, or 7.89, anyway, the, the rest of us have to change. Yeah. And any number of these things sound like overwhelming to even think about. How'd you take on this task, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's based on a series of reports that my co-author, uh, Becky Duff, and I have done. Uh, Becky's my co-author on the book as well. And what we, uh, you know, let's, let's take one, let's take one that I'm, I'm actually fairly positive on which is the electrification of automobiles, electric vehicles. There's a lot of positive momentum in that space. Uh, There's a lot of reasons to believe that over the course of the next decade, uh, we're going to see significant penetration of electric vehicles in the the global auto market. Partly, this is just driven by improvements in the technology. It's, It's getting cheaper and cheaper to make these. The battery technology in particular is improving, especially as we move to scale. And in many ways, the market forces are taking over and, and helping us lead that, that transition. So if on the most probably optimistic side, I would say our, our transition to electric vehicles is proceeding at pace. Um, it doesn't mean there isn't a role for policy to play, for example, to help make sure that occurs and make sure that it happens at a, at a fast rate. But it, you know, all signs are positive in terms of, of that particular sector. 
And then we can go through the others. I probably, you know, the, the second one I would highlight is there's a lot of positive momentum around renewable energy. Solar and wind in particular are becoming cost competitive, in many cases are actually lower cost than alternatives like natural gas. Um, and as a result, again, we're seeing kind of natural adoption of renewable energy by electric utilities. With that said, there's still a long way to go, a long, long way to go before we can uh, eliminate fossil fuel use in electrical generation. Uh, and there are some particular challenges with that one, in particular, the intermittency problem. The sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And so that's going to require some uh, innovation and creativity around things like the grid itself, electrical grids. Um, people talk about smart grids. We also need to innovate around batteries again, because the way you solve the intermittency problem is you store energy when it is being produced in abundance and then you can deploy it when it's when it's needed. And again, you know, there's a whole set of policy interventions and the like that we can take to try to get us to that um, net zero of future and elect utilities. Uh, and then if we go to these, some of these other sectors, it starts to get more challenging. In the case of, let's take cement. Cement, again, is this high usage product that is used throughout our built environment in the world. The process of creating cement creates emissions and The good news is there are active efforts to build and make green cement. There's even an opportunities for cement to become a carbon sink, that it actually absorbs carbon as it's setting uh, in its use in buildings and roads and the like. So that's really exciting. Unfortunately, it's, it's not yet commercially viable. It's not yet at a point where the market, at least, is naturally adopting these alternatives. And so, again, there's a role to play in the broader institutional environment to try to get us to these kind of green cement products and supplant the existing core technology, which is Portland cement, uh, that is what's mostly widespread around the, uh, around the globe. And again, I could keep going on, but I'll, I'll pause there. But you get the idea of how each sector presents its own unique set of challenges. When I think about systems and changing systems, there's changing elements of a system and I mean, I'm swayed a lot by Donella Meadows and uh, some of the limits to growth people. But in particular, about changing a system, I feel you have to change, or one of the most effective things and most important things to change would be the goals and the values of a system. And uh, you haven't talked about that, and I presume, is that part of what you talk about? So I'll say something kind of controversial. Uh-huh. You know, and the way I think about this is, one of the easiest way to become more sustainable is to simply shift consumer preferences towards more sustainable goods. And absolutely, I mean, to one extent, yes. The the problem I have with that type of perspective, at least solely, is that's incredibly difficult. And and we have evidence, you know, repeatedly that consumers, even when expressing, you know, very strong sustainability or environmental uh, values, don't necessarily do that when they're at the counter, right? When they're when they're checking out, or at the very least, their uh, willingness to pay for environmental goods is not significantly more than what they would pay for alternatives. It's partly why I, I emphasize so much uh, technology shifts, because what can happen is even on the existing degrees of merit, there will be adoption if you get kind of the economics right. So take electric vehicles. Clearly, there are those individuals, um, I put myself in this category, who'd be willing to pay a premium, who have the opportunity to pay a premium for an electric vehicle and, and has done so. Where I think we'll really start to get traction is when consumers who maybe aren't thinking about their environmental footprint, but just see electric vehicles as being the preferred mode of automobile, mode of transportation, um, begin to adopt them. 
I'm very excited, for example, about the electric F-150 from Ford coming out this year. Um, I think it could be a game changer. I think it could shift perceptions about what electric vehicles are and who they're for that could start to lead to widespread, uh, widespread adoption. I think when we can get those types of conditions in place, that's often when we see quick adoption and, and we get these true disruptions where technologies turn over and we often see changes in the competitive ordering uh, and the like. So a lot of our focus in the book is, is thinking about well, how do we create those conditions that we get those natural turnovers. It's not, to, again, to say that you know general consumer sentiment, general public sentiment aren't important. Um, they become very important also in the political arena to be able to get anything done from a regulatory or policy standpoint. But I, I worry about the solution simply being a grand awakening of people to environmental issues and changing their behavior. Because uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm too cynical for believing that that the level of change we need will just naturally you know naturally occur. Well, you said solely, but I'm not. I didn't mean solely. To me, that's the big area to work on is is to changing public perception. Not only, you know, I was, listeners have heard me say this a lot, management and leadership, if you try to manage cultural change without any leadership, I don't think you're going to get very far. Yeah. If you try to lead without managing, I think you get a lot of dreamers. And see, I wouldn't want to say just technology. I don't think you were saying just technology. Right. It's tempting to say, if you just do one thing, it won't work. Well, of course, but changing, I, I don't see a lot of, see, if, if, if you say something electric, renewable electricity is going to be cheaper or is already cheaper than anything else. Okay, so people switch. If an electric car has advantages over an internal combustion engine, people switch. But what about areas where it's less convenient and yet very important? I mean, population seems to be one about family size, number of children is, is you can't, I don't think anyone wants legislation on that one. Right. Uh, and I, I guess some people do, but that's a huge misunderstanding like that other people do. And uh, if people don't change the values on that one, it's, I mean, population is a whole other issue, which we could bring up. And uh, so now we got in play values, changing values. Well, and again, as an economist, you know, if you look at like the data on the demography of, of societies and economies as they advance, the, the good news is that we, we often start to pull back on population growth. I mean, we've actually pulled back on population growth, at least the rate of population growth, quite a bit over the last you know, half century. And part of it is because of the advancement of certain economies like uh, Asia. For example, you know, birth rates and and uh, and the like have declined greatly. Um, we'll hopefully see a similar impact in Africa as it becomes more economically advanced. So that, not to say it so- totally solves the problem, but there is an advantage of economic growth that then often leads to declining birth rates and and helps address somewhat of the population uh, problem. Now, the challenge is. As these other parts of the world kind of go through this growth and trajectory, uh, they also tend to demand more resources, right? They demand more things. They want to purchase cars. They want to purchase, you know, whatever. And if each of these areas has to go through the same trajectory that, you know, Western Europe and North America have gone through, that doesn't bode well for, for our society. And so the question is, can we leapfrog, right? Can we, do we have to go the same path? in other areas that are industrializing and, and advancing. Uh, and I think the answer is, is no, they don't have to go through the same path. Um, you know, an example that I always like to give is in Africa, they largely bypassed landline telecommunications. They didn't build a lot of telephone poles. Like they actually jumped right to cellular uh, in a lot of regions in sub-Saharan Africa in particular. Could we see a similar 
type of build out around, you know, electric utilities uh, or electric vehicles where, you know, you don't have to all adopt internal combustion engines before moving to electric vehicles. We can build infrastructure out to support a truly electrified economy. That, that gives me hope, you know, that we, we, we can make this change if we can get the technologies to a point where they're kind of naturally being adopted. Again, you know, love or hate markets, they are incredibly effective diffusing, you know, the most preferred technologies. And we've seen repeatedly over history, different industries being disrupted as new technologies that eventually deem superior take over. I, my favorite example that I give in a lot of talks is the New England whaling industry. This was an original source of, light, of lighting uh, oil from, from whales. It was a vibrant, huge industry in Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and the like. And it collapsed in, in roughly a decade and largely because of the discovery of oil in Western Pennsylvania and discovery of how to process that into kerosene. And soon and quickly, kerosene became the preferred mode of lighting, uh, lighting lights. 30 years after that, it got disrupted again with the discovery of the incandescent light bulb and electrification. And, and that led to even more uh, electrification there. And so this idea that it's natural for economies to have disruptions of new technology come in and sometimes relatively quickly replace them is, is an advantage, not a bug, that this is a, a feature of economies that we need to take advantage of here. It's why I'm optimistic, for example, that electric vehicles, while they're only a you know, few percentage of new car sales at this point, or at least on the trajectory that I think by the end of the decade, we could be seeing the vast majority of new cars be sold, be electric. And so again, it's how do you tap into these underlying economics and dynamics and structure the system to get us where we want to be with the technology. With regards to electric vehicles, you probably, I, I just heard about, I think Norway is really high in adoption there compared to us. So you're probably talking about America and other places is probably much higher. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the percentage number I was giving was more for the US than for, for like Northern Europe in particular, right? There are some countries, I'm not sure what percentage they're at, but significantly, significantly higher. So going back to the population, and I think you're, you're describing demographic transitions, if, if, if that's the right term of art. Since we spoke last time, so a lot, a lot has changed in the past couple of years. Uh, yeah. Like I came across Machai Viravaidya, who's this guy in Thailand. I don't know if you know the name, but he was an economist who was studying the situation in Thailand. He was trained in the West. And he saw that growth would, he, he, he had learned in school that growth would, economic problems like joblessness or, or inequities could be solved through growth. Growth would, would fix these things. Yeah. And he said, when he, his models kept, when he actually looked at the details, they kept messing things up. And so he said, what about degrowth? And he, he saw that that improved things. So this is the 70s, maybe 60s, maybe 80s. Certainly by the 80s, it was in place that he started teaching through, through himself on his own. Uh, and then started a nonprofit, promoted smaller family size. And they went from something like six or seven children per couple to, I think, even below two. And so this was in direct opposition to the one-child policy because there's no forced abortions. There's no forced sterilization. It was all voluntary. And most people describe that like the canonical demographic transition is that first the death rate drops, then the birth rate drops. And there's a period of roughly doubling the population that time. But he and other places, they skip. They didn't, it wasn't as a result of technological change. It was a intentional leadership on different values that brought about the birth rate dropped voluntarily, non-coercively through education, making contraception available, things like that. Also, huge superhero characters and slogans and, and um, making sure that all cops everywhere had condoms if people wanted them. So they didn't have the doubling of the population that time. So instead of it happening, 
through economic processes, uh, which do happen, it was deliberate and got what I would what seems to be from the view of of health and longevity and prosperity and stability was higher outcome outcomes higher on those things, and that's a place where I, I to me he is one of the big places where actively deliberately leading change through values based leadership seems something that I've just had not hadn't crossed my mind before. I would not have thought possible because I wouldn't think of it. I just knew the one-shot policy and didn't know that there could be alternatives. Immediately, this is, a, you know, we're getting a little bit outside my depth here in terms of, uh, you know, how to um, structure policies in terms of uh, the size of families. But I will say, I think one thing you, you said that resonates that we haven't talked about is, you know, you mentioned income inequality. And I think one of the things we really have to realize is, when we think about economic growth, there is, you know, obviously the advancement of the average, right, is often how we talk about it. And then, of course, there's the variance in that as well. If you have high variance, the dynamics which lead to, I think is a correct statement, if you have the dynamics that lead to greater childbirth could still persist even in an improving economy if there are still a significant number of people who are still poverty stricken or in a lower um, socioeconomic level that feel the need to continue to have large number of children. So I, I think, again, I'm outside my depth of expertise here, but I think it is absolutely correct to think about not just the averages, but the distribution as you think about this issue of, again, why people make the choices they make in terms of family size. And yeah, also, I mean, when you throw in value shifts, if you can get a cultural shift in values, that I think also changes things. I mean, I think that having larger families made a lot of sense when there was lots of land left to be developed in the world, not so much land left to be developed in the world. And, but I think culture tends, if we don't deliberately change it, it takes a lot longer to change. And deliberately changing culture is not su- such an easy thing. It often backfire. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And to be clear, I'm not disagreeing with the notion. What I am arguing is that it's, uh, it's hard. It's really hard to fundamentally change cultures. And of course, this would have to be globally. So it's not just yeah. in certain countries, but like everywhere. And hey, we need to try to pull every lever available to us if we're going to try to address climate change. It's, uh, uh, it's a train running down the, the railway uh, that's going to be hard to stop as it is. With that said, you know, again, I'm focusing more on that, those technology shifts and what can be done at the margin to get those technologies to, to advance. And again, I agree with you completely that the ability politically and otherwise to do so is probably going to require cultural shifts as well. Uh, and there's lots of things that might be driving those, including, you know, the increasing recognition that current weather events are probably in part impacted by climate change already. And that if we don't get moving soon, you know, this is only going to increase and get worse, whether you're in California or uh, Africa or wherever you might be in the world. But the technology, is it okay with you if I push a bit here? Because sure. to me, my, my view on technology has evolved a lot. So I, I come with a PhD in physics and, and my ideas of fusion and efficiency were, these were the answers to me. And a couple images have changed this for me. Images, I'll, I'll give the images, but also I feel like there's data backing this up. The one I usually think of most is when James Watt created the steam, his steam engine. It was significantly more efficient than the Newcomen engine before that. And people expected coal use to go down, but it went up because it was cheaper to use. And so more people use more steam engines for more different reasons. Each use went down, 
but overall it went up. And this has repeated with Uber was supposed to decrease traffic congestion and it increased it. Right. And, you know, ENIAC, when they turned it on, dimmed Philadelphia, I believe, the, the city. And now our, our cell phones are like a billion times more, more transistors and more computing power. And each one uses nothing near the energy of ENIAC, but collectively we're using more energy than ever. Now, of course, there are huge benefits to the internet and so forth. But those benefits aren't worth much if, if it leads to society collapsing. And so my view, where I've come to on technology is that technology, it does not have its own value. I, I don't believe technology is positive or negative. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe some are at the extreme ends, but that they augment the values and the goals of the people using them. So if someone is interested in growth and you give them technology and they'll grow, if you give them, if they're interested in degrowth, and you give them technology, they'll degrow. And so if we don't change our values first, we, I believe that making a polluting system more efficient will have lots of little areas where it's less polluting, but we'll end up polluting more efficiently, which I feel like describes our world that, you know, I can, I can swipe on my phone with my finger and miles away, a 2000 pound vehicle will start driving my food over in containers that will last a thousand years. I haven't even burned one calorie and I've caused a lot of emissions. This is where I've come. And I say this not to debate, but to figure out how do you look at it differently or is it this? So I think uh, a couple of thoughts, you know, no disagreement that as technologies improve, they become more efficient, we would expect increasing consumption, right? So if, for example, the price of electricity would likely continue to decline as we do better with renewables. Or as you said, if let's you know, say we, we get you know, really fortunate and discover like really commercially viable fusion uh, nuclear energy. One would expect electrical usage would, would grow because again, it's cheaper, it's easier now to use that. So I think that notion of efficiency drives consumption, I think is an incorrect. It, it is a byproduct of the way you know, our systems work. I don't think that's necessarily, necessarily a fatal thing. I think the question at hand is, can you decouple consumption, and I'm using that term broadly, you know, in terms of kind of economic activity and economic growth from resource extraction and resource usage. And while historically those have been highly related, there's also some reasons to believe that that there could be a decoupling between those two, right? That it isn't necessarily implied that because we are Again, consuming more, and I'm using this term again very broadly because what we're really talking about is even services and the way we value things as a as a people. Could that be decoupled from that? Also means greater environmental impact or greater resources. I, I think the answer is yes, theoretically, at least. And we've seen some of that, especially in I think in our digital age, that you could have somewhat of a decoupling here. All of that to say, you know, this question of unintended consequences of technology, I think a lot of that a lot. And I don't have a good answer other than to keep on innovating. You know, I always go back and we talked about this in the last podcast. You know, the automobile, when it first came about, was viewed as an environmental good. It was solving a huge environmental problem, which was manure in the city streets of uh, New York and other, other major cities. Did they know at the time that an automobile would be, you know, creating greenhouse gases that would lead to climate change? No. And that's, that's the reason they're unintended. Uh, we, we just often don't know those impacts until sometimes decades uh, later. And so not surprising, I am a, you know, I, I've, been, I've been faulted for being a technology optimist or an innovation optimist. 
But I also don't see the other any other way out of this, you know, unless we somehow have perfect foresight into what we do and its impacts in the long run. All we can do is continually work to be better, right, and to address the issues that the technologies arise and try to ameliorate them as best we can by inventing a new and coming up with new um, solutions. Again, you know, I'll, you know, I'll push back on the consumption arguments that, you know, all we really should do is reduce consumption. Again, Wait, let's not do only things. I know that. And that, I think that's where we're both. I think it's I think we both agree that it's it's both right. Mm-hmm. We need to advance technologies and substitute new technologies for those that are more polluting in our past. Mm-hmm. And we should simultaneously be working on how do we change our lifestyles to reduce our consumption. Uh, in the United States and a lot of you know Western economies, I think one of the big issues that we don't talk enough about is land use planning. How we organize our lives and our proximity, for example, of where we live to where we work or where we shop has a huge impact on what our ultimate environmental footprint is. COVID has actually brought a lot of these to, to bear in people's minds. Like, why do I need to be commuting an hour a day in and out of a job. Um, maybe there's ways of organizing our lives that have both a way of reducing our environmental footprint and simultaneously enriching our lives. And those, are, I think, are very positive like conversations and, and outcomes that we should, be, we should be exploring. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. The decoupling, I've become less and less confident in that happening. And the more I read about it, the more it seems like it it tends to go the other way. And it offers, to me, there's, we've had generations of of, um, people saying, it's just around the corner, we'll fix this. And it just feels to me like we're saying what we said before, whereas if we it seems pretty clear that if we have smaller families and we consume less, that works. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yes, it's very hard. People don't seem to want to do it, but those who do don't want to go back. And I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's so everyone's looking for something to just not change themselves. And as long as that carrot is out there, not carrot, but uh, gold rings, this, this hope is out there. They're like, Oh, great. I don't have to do anything. And it's, to me, there are other opportunities that, that yes, we, if, if there's two things, one, one technology pollutes more and one t- technology pollutes less, we should switch to the one that pollutes less to the extent we can. And, or drop them both if they're unnecessary. I mean, there's, I always think of, of someone invented, what are they called? Like waterfall showers that use tons of, that give huge amounts of water. Right? And then someone does one, so a low flow waterfall shower. They've like jammed up the pollution and then pulled it back. And now they say we're green. Right. And there's also low flow showers in the first place, which I think would be the better technology. But that, that example shows up in a lot of places. That pattern shows up a lot, I think, of like something pollutes heavily. We reduce it and then say, ah, see, now we're green. Where sometimes we don't need the technology at all. My uh, mentor, John Ehrenfeld, you know, always talked about there is no sustainable technologies. There's just some technologies that are less unsustainable than others. 
which I think is probably the right way to think about it, right? Like, you know, we, we can't speak in absolutes, but what we can speak about is that relatively some technologies are going to have a lower environmental footprint than, than others and that we should be exploring those. Yeah, that says, I mean, that says we have to get to an amount of pollution that we cause, which is less than what the earth can regenerate through its national process, processes and also not destroy those processes while we're going at it because I, I think we're lowering the earth's ability to sustain life. Well, this is, you know, to get back to the book real quick, but it's um, as daunting as climate change is, it in some ways is a simpler problem in that we kind of understand what are the processes that are you know, creating greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we understand the implications. Now, we don't fully understand them, right? There's a lot of uncertainty about when we reach certain concentrations, what will be the net impact on the world. We're getting a better and better picture of that. So we at least understand what we need to do. Then the question becomes, again, how do we engineer the system to get us, get us to that point? And, that, and again, that's you know, what we're trying to do in the book is to break it down by these sectors to understand what needs to happen in each of these sectors. You know, I had a student um, a little while back and we were talking about this topic in, in one of my classes. And she said, you know, all we need is all the oil and gas companies to stop producing oil and gas. Oh yeah, that's all. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um other than being a little concerned about the, you know, the, the rigor of the logic of that comment, I think there's a lot of people who think that way. And you know, the, the answer has to be, you know, do you want to stop driving your car, or being moving around or do you want to stop having electricity or do you, you know, what what are you willing to sacrifice if that really is what you think needs to take place? And Again, I don't mean to be cynical, but I, I worry that if our solution is this kind of grand awakening, again, you're not saying it's the only thing. And I think we're in agreement that it should be part of the, the puzzle. Um, but if that's the main thing we're hoping for, I, I fear we'll be waiting for a while. And maybe it's human nature. I mean, this is uh, why they call economics the dismal science. You know, this is a, a classic collective action problem, right? You know, you, you need on a global basis a population of 7 billion people to have an awakening about the quality of their life and the lifestyle they want to lead, to be changing their consumption patterns in a way that I'm not optimistic that that will happen either naturally or or even with you know nudges from governments and other other institutions. Not to say that we shouldn't try. I'm just saying I'd, I'd be wary of putting most of my eggs in that basket because I think this history has demonstrated that that's a that's a, you know, a long hope and wait for that type of grand awakening and change in behavior. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a necessary piece that people aren't looking at. Like when you said, what are you willing to sacrifice? That implies, you know, my mission is to change American and global culture, to change the perception of, of acting in stewardship from thinking, oh, that's deprivation, that's sacrifice, that's burden, that's a chore, to mm-hmm. It's different for everyone. For me, it's been joy and, and fun and freedom. Uh, but you know, it's generally rewarding emotions that are that they like the change. So, in the case of giving up a car, if you consider the world static, there's nothing I can do. There's highways, and there's no way for me to get from my suburb to my job except that I have to drive a car. Then you're kind of stuck. But if you think, well, someone in some places have changed, uh, like. Uh, Amsterdam was overrun with cars in the 60s and 70s. And I think everyone identifies it as a car, a uh, bicycle heaven now or something like that. Yeah. That was deliberate. You know, they had to change the city's infrastructure and, and to go through all sorts of planning to make that happen. And now I don't think anyone is, would say, let's go back to cars uh, through all through our city center. 
and Copenhagen and all these other places have done similar things. And it takes work. You know, a lot of people now, food being a big issue, I buy a lot of stuff from farmers markets and I buy packaged food. And people say, well, Josh, you can do that because you're in Manhattan. You got the farmers markets, you got the co ops, you got the CSAs. And it took me back to realizing that when I was a little kid, I mean, a real baby, my parents started a co op in Philadelphia and they got together with other families. And they, they, it took work, but it actually saved money and time once they got it set up, where one family, something like 10 families, and once, once every 10 turns, one would drive down to South Philly to the distribution center and get more food at a lower price. And since they were going at like 4 a.m., they got the better food. And now that co-op in Philadelphia, Weaver's Way, like everyone's proud of it. It's a real pillar of the community. And wherever I, ever since then, I, it didn't occur to me when I was growing up that this co-op was such a big part of my life. And now we're, I belong to co-op now. And there's one near me, but if there wasn't, I would do what it took to help form one. And not everyone can do everything, but that's something to look forward to. That's something to act on. And again, I was going to say, you know, and again, I think we are in agreement that it's, it's an and, not an or. But I, I will say we have 30 years, less than 30 years, to reduce our global footprint to net zero emissions. You know, I, I don't see the path by which, again, I'm going to use the or instead of the and, but in which we get there purely from behavioral, behavioral changes. Oh, yeah. I don't um, see that either. There's no way just... Yeah, then you just have a bunch of people being like, it'll happen, it'll happen, it'll happen, and nothing happens. Right, right. And I think that's 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 my general perspective, that there are some of these areas in which we might be able to make significant progress, even absent fundamental wholesale changes in people's behavior, right? That's what gives me at least some hope that we can actually get our hands around some of this problem and try to and try to make progress. I'm going to bounce an idea. This is a half-baked idea. It's, mm-hmm. it's not an idea to actually implement, but as a discussion point, because this is not politically feasible and I wouldn't suggest that it is. But imagine we have, say we have whatever uh, energy fossil fuel use we have, say it's 10 units. If we said next year, we're going to use nine and that's it. We, we're not going to go above nine. And hospitals and fire departments, you know, we're going to make sure, and, and people on the border that can't, you know, they, they're using the bare minimum and they can't lower, we'll make sure that they're taken care of. But that leaves most of the economy and most people left. And the following year, eight, the following year, seven, then six, then five, then four, then three, then two, then one, then zero. So in 10 years, we're down to zero. I think that I've been throwing a bunch of economists under the bus, at least in these thoughts, that if we ask economists, can this be done? They will come back to you in 20 years with more questions and more opinions and uh, not really, and same with politicians and journalists and so forth. But if we actually did it, I think that certainly the first year, people would figure it out. You know, some people would fly less and some people would drive less and so forth. And I think by the time we get to like the seventh, eighth year, when we're down to like 30%, 20%, I think we'd start facing some challenges, except that if people were changing along the way, that these changes would, you know, when you're the only one doing it, it's hard. But when everyone's doing it, things start, we're all swimming downstream together. And I think that if people were... I don't want to say forced to, because I don't want to imply that I'm suggesting that we have some draconian authoritarian solution, but just that if we wait to, if we have to solve everything before we start, I think that we will try to solve everything and we can come up with an infinite number of problems and then therefore never solve them and never get started. But if we just said, we're just going to drop by one unit, one tenth, I think people would, I think some problems that we now can't solve, I think a lot of them we'd solve within a few days or even hours of people just saying, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. 
this is a discussion point. I'm not sure if it's going to go anywhere or not. <laughs> you might be like, Josh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Again, I'm sense. trying not to be entirely dismissive of, of behavioral change. Um, you know, we'll go back to what we were talking about. Like, I don't see how we make the progress on um, livestock and meat consumption without it being driven primarily by behavioral change. I, I just don't see, there's no, there's unlikely to be a technology fix uh, that we see though. There is efforts. There's things like clean meat, you know, lab, seaweed and yeah, yeah, we have grown meat and things that people are trying. So, it, you know, there are technology fixes people are trying, but perhaps hard to see them becoming commercially viable in, you know, in the near term. Let's take your, your example of a very narrow one. Let's focus, let's say, the United States or even you know, where I live, the state of Virginia. If our local utility, Dominion, said, we've decided that we're going to wind down the amount of electricity we provide in an attempt to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. Not technology substitution, let's just reduce demand. What would be the process or the set of instruments that would be used to do so, right? And that, that you know, again... That's where I struggle. I mean, you could do it. Probably means like rolling blackouts or some mechanism that reduces the the supply of electricity. Or I don't know. You could try like a voluntary program for consumers to shut off their lights for certain times of the day, or you know. And a lot of these types of again behavioral change have have been tried in different areas. But again, I'm not trying to be totally dismissive. I'm just trying to be realistic that. Those types of approaches to me probably will engender a pretty strong response from yeah. you know individuals and consumers and, and others who are going to be like, wait a minute, my electricity now is going to be turned off. Again, we can we can we try to persuade people that you know they need to do this for the good of the world. But these are why these are collective action problems. I mean, take something like COVID. Here's something that's relatively a much simpler challenge than than climate change, and we can't get people to agree on basic you know, social norms of what is acceptable or unacceptable behavior. Thinking about it, getting people to change their consumption patterns for, like I say, take something narrow like electricity or how many miles you drive your car. I think it's going to be, I think it would be challenging to get a kind of groundswell of behavioral change. Again, I'd say that not to say we shouldn't try, but I don't know if I'd, you know, put much faith in that's going to be the way we're going to, we're going to be able to get change here. I'm actually glad I mentioned it because something about what you said made me think about, I think it's Cape Town. And I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, that they, I think they were hitting, they're going to run out of water. Yep. And at first they said, all right, we got to all conserve. And not everyone conserved. Right. I think one of the big things that kind of make the press, if I, if I remember it right, was that eventually they started saying, these rich areas, this is how much they're using. And, what, and once right. it became public, they started actually falling in line. But I think that solution would never have come about had they not reached that level. I don't mean the level of running out of water, but I mean, they tried everything and eventually they're like, okay, this, we got to do this. I think that when we're actually there, so you say, what would we do? Is it rolling blackouts? Is it when we actually face it, then it actually would. I think that we'd come up with solutions that work that we wouldn't without actually being there. Yeah. And I think this is where climate change in particular is particularly complex. So you take water usage, still a collective action problem, but the end result is uh, can be very tangible in the near term, right? Like if, if, if I'm out in Southern California during a drought watering my lawn, I know that there might come a point where I myself can no longer consume water, right? Because we have used it all up. Therefore, it's a little more immediate 
and felt by not only me, but everyone around me as they see me and engaging in my behavior and try to maybe shame me for what I'm doing because they can see the tangible impact it's going to have on them. Climate change has always been challenging because it's always kind of a future. It's probabilistic, right? In the sense that like, you know, hurricanes increase or droughts occur and, and, and like what are the second or third order impacts of that? And it's global. You know, that's the other piece that makes this particularly vexing. So let's, let's throw in time delays that what we do now, we affect decades. Time, time delays, global uncertainty and probabilistic impacts, all of those things make it incredibly challenging. And, and again, the reason we're having these water crises in places like South Africa or Southern California is because we have a hard time dealing with these collective action problems in the first place. And again, this one is uh, water is a much more tangible easier to uh, internalize problem than climate change. So, so again, you know, try we must, but I am wary of these types of, of this being the predominant way we're going to be able to solve this problem. Yeah. I, I just think if without that as part of it, I think everything else, there's many things that if X is not part of it, all of it together won't work. I think this is one of the things that- and I think that's one of our big messages in the book is- um, Similar to what we talked about in our first book, you know, my first book was uh, there is no silver bullet here, right? As much as we'd like there to be like a policy solution or a, a regulation that could take place to kind of solve this problem, that's unlikely. And, and what we what we need is a broad portfolio, and and that's what we argue for in the book is kind of a broad technology policy across these different sectors that focus on in the particular needs that they have to try to advance these disruptions and bring in the clean technologies that we need in each of these. And again, it's going to look very different from agriculture to buildings, to transportation, to electric um, utilities in terms of what needs to be done to get us there. And so that's, you know, that's what we're we're laying out is kind of a, a broader comprehensive policy and also recognize that it needs to be customized to different geographies, different states, uh, different nations to their particular situations and needs. Well, I'm glad you brought back to your book because I'm also glad that uh, I really appreciate there's not that many economists, systems thinkers who have thought this stuff through that I can bounce these ideas off of. And we could have, I mean, I'd be happy to talk to you for eight hours. (laughs) I would enjoy it as well, Josh. (laughs) And if your game, you know, record or not, I'd be happy to. And I'm also curious, is the book, are you writing for the average American, the average global citizen, for policymakers, for all of the above? Yeah, you know, all of the above has been our kind of message uh, in, in both these books that I've written in that, you know, we're, we're trying to, again, make tractable what seems intractable to a broader audience. You know, again, I think for those people who are just broadly interested in how can we possibly address climate change, I think they can find value in the book and the way we try to, again, break up the problem into its constituent parts and to start think about thinking about what could be done in each of these uh, these sectors? Clearly, we have in mind an audience of policymakers, and and I use the term policy broadly because I want it to be clear we're not just talking about like you know federal government policy. I also think about what might be called private policy. You know, what what are the actions that a company could take? What are the action that a university could take to try to help advance our uh, path towards a decarbonized future? Take universities, for example, you know, there are some core needs we have in terms of advancing some fundamental technologies. You know, I mentioned steel and cement as some industrials, alternatives to petroleum-based plastics, 
clearly in terms of like battery storage technology or storage technology more broadly defined. Those are all places that maybe universities can take an active role, form co- you know consortiums and really try to do, as we talk about moonshots for some of these technologies to try to get them to the place they need to be, to be widely adopted. So there's a role to play from lots of different, you know, individuals and institutional players to try to get us to, to where we need to be. And again, the common theme in my work is there's no silver bullet. You, you've really got to be thinking about the hundreds, if not thousands of levers that are available to us to advance. And even the behavioral change piece that you've been discussing, you know, I definitely put that in the, in the toolkit uh, as well. Yeah, I would say mindset shift. And okay, so I have not read the decarbonization imperative, but I have read Can Business Save the Earth? And I, what you can't mention, but I will, is that it's eminently readable, the one that I've read. So if, if this one is just half as readable, it's, it's really, <laughs> anyone can get it. It's not, I mean, we talked about a bunch of policy things and stuff like that, but really it's very easily digestible. The first one was. And so I guess this one, I'm guessing you're a better writer now than you were then. I hope that's the case. So thank you yeah. for saying that. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely the goal is, is that we're not trying to make this um, more opaque. We're trying to make this you know easier to digest and understand. Well, Michael Lennox, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.